Just over a month into the job, the Army's new chief information officer, Leo Garciga, says the Army's rapid adoption of new technology in the last couple of years outran the policies needed to support new programs. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke to Garciga about his priorities, and she joins me now. And so what is Garciga planning to work on now that he's CIO? I imagine it has to do with policies to support technology. Well, yes, policies to support technology, Tom. Uh, there's been a, a lot of new things going on in the Army. There's been a huge growth of, of software programs, not only in the Army, but military-wide. Then the use of data storage has been another big story in technology and data platforms and cybersecurity. So with all of those things going on, Garcia, who's pretty recently taking his new job, is saying, wait a second, we need to take a breath, pause, and create some policy for how we regulate all of these different new technologies and, and how they're organized. Here's Army Chief Information Officer Leo Garcia. We've done these massive sprints. We've moved forward. Now we have to kind of codify and institutionalize that. I think the first piece that I'm really, really focused on right now is what are those critical enablers on the policy side to actually start to institutionalize some things, right? And some things out there, like lots of great work that's happened at AFC and and a, a lot of the programs out there have really started doing DSO for real, right, and started getting some of these capabilities, but we still haven't put guidance out, right? So we're going to focus around some things that are that are huge leaps, both from a security perspective. And I guess he's talking about uh, the Futures Command. Army Futures Command has done some great work there. And so how does he plan to actually organize all of this new data and software? He's looking at it in two different phases. He thinks there needs to be some large, overreaching roadmaps that control all of these things. But he also feels like something needs to be done pretty quickly. So right now what he's doing is looking at interim policies that he can put out there for specific programs and kind of get some organization and some some regulations for it and then move forward with broader policy in the future. As you see, a really big focus on policy, and there's a reason for that. One, it's actually my job. Two, it's a space where we've kind of waited to do it and focused mostly on, hey, we're going to change these longstanding huge policies that are out there in the Army and some guidance, but we're not moving as fast as everybody else is right now. Right, The programs are moving too fast. Capabilities out in private industry are moving too fast. So we have to adjust the way we do this. So well, let's uh, start doing what we need to do right, and rewrite it. So you can see a lot of interim guidance coming out in that space. Well, he's right that his job is policy. He's not really there to crawl on the floor and pull wires through infrastructure and put Cat5 connectors on. Did he name any specific policies, Alex? Yes, he did. He had a couple different things that were the top of his priority list, things he wants to get on right away. One of them is container policy. Uh, The use of containers has really grown in popularity as a method of efficiently packaging and deploying software. But with that agility comes some new security risks. I guess scans can't always see what's inside the containers. So that's one area he's looking to get to right away. The other thing he's looking at is improving the user experience when it comes to zero trust implementation plan. That's sort of been a problem because it bogs down the system. And then there's there's data platforms. He has some concerns about public data on government data platforms. We are going to be putting out some interesting guidance on uh, use of government data on public and commercial platforms. Um, I will not name any of them because I'm sure that the folks in legal will not like that. But there are platforms out there that are being used to do some analytical work, and we need to remind folks that 
some rules around this, right? And we need to protect DOD data, and we need to protect uh, personal information, too. And what does he say about future software acquisition? Because that's central to almost everything they do. Right. So, again, he's looking at those data platforms and expanding that capability in the Army. And he said that expect next year, say, second quarter 2024, we'll be seeing two requests for proposals coming out of his office, and they'll be looking out as I said, to to build out data platforms, and they'll be looking at multi-vendor possibilities for that contract. You know, part of this is really reshaping and being able to explain to tenants and customers coming in. And if you're a PM inside your RFPs, what it's going to look like to come into cloud in a secure environment. Um, So really going to focus on getting some of that out sooner rather than later, one to inform the acquisition cycle. And I think the other one to get some standardization across the board so we can see ourselves a little bit better. And by the way, where was he making all of these statements? This was at an AFSIA TechNet conference in Augusta, Georgia last week. Augusta, Georgia. Interesting. I guess maybe they had a little golf at the end. Who knows? But what else came up at that conference? I'm curious about the TechNet down in Augusta. I'm sure they had golf involved, but it was so hot last week. I don't know how much of that they did. Another thing that a lot of the speakers talked about was this idea of securing the software supply chain and that as we innovate and bring in new new vendors for different software products, that we really need to protect that security and that protecting that security doesn't necessarily mean that the user experience is going to be a terrible one. Right. This idea of zero trust and they want to get rid of passwords and the rest of it. So a lot of work there to be done, not just by the Army, but pretty much across the board in federal agencies. That's right. And looking at where the software came, who developed it, and what's involved that can cause security risks. All right. That's everybody's concern. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people 
will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that. But I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but 
But I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. A matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith 
and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.